episode 66. How about that? It's the Annex Wealth Management SWAT podcast, Monday, August 28th. Welcome. Trevor Nargis, senior trader. Hey, Welcome. Danny. And we've got Dr. Brian Jacobson, Chief Economist. Welcome to you. Great to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody. Don't forget to share this with a friend, colleague, family member. It makes a a great gift if you send it to somebody. I'm sure if you have done your Christmas shopping, Mother's Day shopping, birthday shopping, whatever, just uh, share it with them as a, a gift to them. We'd really appreciate it. We're going to start with a little bit about um, looking ahead before we get into the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Looking ahead calendar, uh, it's actually a fairly full week. A lot of people are going to be on vacation probably because you do have Labor Day coming up next Monday. But uh, we do have the JOLTS numbers coming out on Tuesday. That's the Job Openings Labor Turnover Statistics. That's kind of an important one. The Fed tends to like to look at that as far as job openings as an indicator of whether or not the labor market is cooling enough or not. Uh, Wednesday, we get a second look at second quarter GDP numbers, gross domestic product. That's kind of a fun one because they actually release additional information relative to the prior release, more details, also corporate profits. Uh, I know Todd Voigt, our chief investment strategist, that's one of his favorite ones to take a look at because it's instead of just looking at how is it that you know, S&P 500 corporate profits are doing, it's looking at the whole economy. So that could be pretty informative. Then Thursday, we get the personal income and spending numbers. Uh, That's where we get the Fed's favorite inflation gauge, the PCE, Personal Consumption Expenditure Price Index. And then Friday is the big day. That's the Employment Situation Report. And we also get the Institute for Supply Management Manufacturing Index. So all sorts of good stuff on the week ahead. Is there anything on the market side of things uh, that uh, we're really looking for uh, in the week ahead? I think one thing to note is we have some T-bill auctions coming out Mm -hmm. on Monday. So we'll be pretty interested to see what's going to happen there as far as people piling in, what these bills are going to be auctioned at. Be interesting from a fixed income side of things. But that's really the one that we're watching here. But we can pivot into strengths here. Brian, what do you got? Yeah, as far as strengths from an economic perspective, I would have to say that it's probably new home sales and consumer confidence. Uh, Those are the areas that have shown the most strength. We know consumer spending has been a lot more robust and resilient than what a lot of people were expecting. Uh, New home sales have taken a nice big bounce. Now, just for some perspective, right? you've got existing home sales. So that's for people who are selling their home. New home sales are basically from property developers and home builders. So it's actually a a much smaller subset of the overall housing market, but it's a really important one. And that area has been charging ahead while existing home sales have continued to languish. I think the most recent numbers were existing home sales down 16.6% year on year, while new home sales were up more than 30% year on year. So I would say those are probably two of the areas of strength that I would point to. How about you? Do you? What's your take on any areas of strength? I'm not going to say anything that's really groundbreaking to anyone who's paid attention to the markets this year. Strength has clearly been NVIDIA. They just reported this week. Now, stock moved around a bunch, but as far as year-over-year gains that they've seen in revenues and whatnot, that has been very strong. The key thing to think about there is what does that mean for kind of ancillary companies and industries that are perhaps related to the boom in AI, right? There's been a lot of hype around that. What we've talked about a couple times, whether it be on this podcast as a team, is 
it does take time for these kind of things to hash out and see who the clear winners are going to be, who's really going to be able to capture market share, grow earnings, so on and so forth. NVIDIA itself has clearly been a strength. Tech has been strong. It's been a great week for tech relative to the rest of the sectors in the S&P 500, if you're looking at what took place last week. Um, but one other area that's been strong as far as the market is related, albeit short term, has been the dollar. So the dollar has been in a steady downtrend for the better part of the last couple months, couple quarters, and it's starting to try and break that downtrend. You know, people talk about the integrity of moving averages. Maybe they like them, maybe they don't. But the dollar's kind of at a key level of trying to break that downtrend. And what that's really been fueled by what we've talked about as a team has been the move in real rates that we've seen. And, you know, relative to the rest of the world, it reflects relative strength of the dollar compared to what you're seeing across the globe. And I think some of that has also been, Brian, you were telling me the other day, has been some of maybe a flight to safety. Mm-hmm. When we look at the currency moves, each country is a little unique as far as what the main drivers are. And it can change over time, too. Right? It's hard to predict exactly what's going to be driving the currencies. Sometimes it's the interest rate differential. So that's just referring to, let's say, hey, if the Fed is expected to keep hiking faster than other central banks, the dollar tends to appreciate. But then at other times, it could be both uh, based more on inflation. If you get relatively higher inflation in the United States, if there's inflation surprises relative to everywhere else, that could tend to weaken the dollar. If you get growth differentials, so if you have stronger growth in the United States relative to the rest of the world, that could tend to appreciate the dollar, push it higher. And I think that's kind of what we've been seeing a little bit is when we look at the purchasing manager indices globally, uh, U.S., even though you do see some relative weakness there in manufacturing compared to services as a whole, it's looking a lot better than, say, Europe, where I think you could easily say that they are in a recession. So part of it is the growth differential and then also that fear factor. And the U.S. dollar still attracts that safety bid from investors in times of stress. And I think that's a healthy thing because, as you mentioned, we have those treasury auctions coming up. And maybe this kind of pivots a bit into some of the weaknesses as well Is some of those auctions have been not horrible, but they've been bad. Not great. You know, yeah, they've been weak. And despite that weakness, we still see this dollar strength. It's a little interesting as far as this dichotomy between what's going on with yields, especially with those longer term auctions, and then the recent strength of the dollar. We'll have to see if these moving averages hold or not. Yeah. And let's use that kind of dollar theme to kind of get into the first weakness that we're talking about. So dollar, currency, money, right, capital in general. One weakness that we've talked about has been the cost of funding given higher rates. So maybe, you know, this can be thought of as a threat, but we'll try and stick on the weakness side of this right now. And really the weakness is kind of the quality or health of more like higher yield companies, Mm -hmm. companies that are down the quality scale. And so the concern around higher rates that factors into maturity walls and maturity of debt, right? So this year, next year, 2025, we're seeing these walls of maturity start to come up, especially in the high yield space. And a lot of these companies were able to access capital at very low rates and lock in those rates for quite some time. But now it's kind of time to pay the piper, right? Rates have moved a large clip compared to what they have been for in 2018, 2019, Mm -hmm. so on and so forth, when rates practically went to zero during COVID. The fact that these companies are going to need to refinance there and that they need access to outside capital, they have to tap the debt markets in order to keep operations going. It is kind of a weakness in the sense that 
maybe going forward that eats into margins, what they're able to bring through their bottom line, interest payments tick up, so on and so forth. Yeah, and I would actually say that that a lot of companies, especially S and P five hundred companies, they almost over borrowed while rates were low, and so we've seen interest rates broadly go up, but they haven't really had to tap the markets to refinance yet. And in fact, the debt servicing cost, the net debt servicing cost, has gone down for those companies because they borrowed money at very low rates. They put it in cash, and now cash gets a pretty decent yield. And so actually, you've seen their debt servicing costs fall for the big cap companies. The smaller cap, so Russell 2000, you haven't seen that same dynamic. They weren't able to really do the precautionary or speculative borrowing when rates were so low. So that's actually an also interesting part about why I believe that the long and variable lags associated with monetary policy, they're actually longer than what they used to be. A lot of people are arguing that it's actually shorter, that, oh, you've already seen the market react, you saw you know housing fall off a cliff, manufacturing is slow, and that. I actually think that while that's true, you're actually going to see longer lags with monetary policy because the household sector also did something similar. They were able to really borrow at those low rates, and monetary policy, when they hike rates, it really mostly affects new borrowers or people who are refinancing. And so if you don't have to refinance or if you don't have to borrow, you're not really adversely affected by those higher rates. So I would say that that weakness from that economic perspective is that you do have this cost of funding going higher and it is likely to be a slow bleed and drag on the economy as opposed to something a little bit more abrupt, which is what people have thought of in the past. So people might get caught flat-footed by how these pressures can build. And you touched on it earlier, Brian, as far as purchasing manager surveys and indices and whatnot. What are you seeing as far as potential weaknesses as, as far as PMIs are related? Uh, recession in Europe. I think that is an ongoing story there. Had somewhat higher hopes for European growth that they would have had a recession already. And I think you did have that in Germany with a couple quarters in a row of decline. And then they would begin to bounce. But it seems like it's actually more of this trough that they're stuck in instead of you know this fall and then a bounce it's falling and going splat right just kind of it doesn't seem to really be gaining any traction to see an acceleration over there so that's from the PMI data. In the United States we are seeing the weakness on the manufacturing side. Service sector activity is still positive. It's still growing, but it's growing at a slower pace. And that's the thing that I think has caught the Fed by surprise is the resilience of the service sector. But I'm not saying that they're out of the woods. I mean, they just might be getting into the woods now. As far as that is concerned, you know, when you're looking at maybe broader economies, broader areas of the globe, whether that be regions, so to speak, that is why it can be quite hard to play things essentially from a top-down perspective, Mm -hmm. just trying to, you know, allocate capital to one country versus another country or, you know, one major economic area versus another, which is why we talk repeatedly about knowing what you own and maybe tilting towards different factors or different managers that are set to essentially allocate capital in a way that can favor longer-term trends Mm -hmm. in underlying companies. And so I'm kind of pivoting into opportunities here, but that opportunity being kind of the intersection between value and quality, right? And so there are some aspects of quality to keep in mind because that term can kind of get thrown around. Mm -hmm. But things that we like to look for are 
return on invested capital levels, what are those at for a given company relative to whatever screens, maybe in their industry, maybe amongst competitors. We also like to look at the durability of one's business model as well. Some people, sometimes when they hear that, maybe they think of a company's moat, mm -hmm. right? What kind of barriers to entry do they have set up compared to competitors? And then also we talk about the health of the balance sheet, right? We talked about being able to access the debt markets, what's going on in the high yield space. Really in this environment going forward where you have higher rates across the board, you want those companies that are financed quite well, that really have things wrapped up underneath the hood and can proceed going forward without having to worry about accessing outside capital. And one thing I want to go back to, I talked about return on invested capital as well. Another kind of subset of that is the strength of a management team mm -hmm. as capital allocators, allocating to the right areas of the business that are growing, that are doing well, that are really capturing market share. So when it comes to quality and value as an intersection, I think that there is a general opportunity there, especially that going forward, we've talked about higher rates, making it tougher for companies to operate in general, right? Because yeah. funding costs go up, it tends to slow economic activity. So I think companies that are really kind of the cream of the crop, so to speak, are poised to continue to march on here going forward. Yeah, that's a great observation. When I teach international finance, we talk a lot about the weighted average cost of capital. <laughs> and if debt costs are going up, the weighted average cost of capital is going up. So hurdle rates of return also increase. It's one of the ways in which higher rates can actually drag on growth is through that corporate finance lens as far as the uh, projects that companies are willing to take. And it really does raise the bar for a lot of businesses. I love the point about maybe not being so aware of the country, but more these different factors. Kind of think about it. Do you really care if the company that you're investing in, if they are technically domiciled in, say, you know, California or Delaware? Right. Probably not. Right. It matters. Where do they sell their products? Where is it that they manufacture things? Where is it the, the clients that they service? Similar thing as far as with S a lot of S&P 500 companies, they get a good chunk of their revenue from outside of the United States. So they are much more geared to global growth than they are to domestic growth. Uh, one of the famous sayings in finance in investing is that S&P is not GDP, right? So gross domestic product, economic growth, that's one thing. S&P 500, right, that could be a very different thing. So the market, the domestic market could be marching to the tune of a very different and global drummer. One area that we have seen a lot of weakness, which maybe is a bit of an opportunity now, is with the China's market. Yeah, I think Todd Voigt, our chief investment strategist, has said it's almost like the proverbial blood in the streets, where if you should look at the face, uh, people's faces when you ask them about China or if they think China would be a good place to invest, when everybody's turning up their noses, maybe that's a time to dig in, do that SWOT analysis on the companies, right? And try to find out who's got the moats, who's got the quality that maybe there's a decent opportunity in that intersection between quality and valuations. Yeah, and valuations, that actually takes us into threats here as well. That's one point that we were talking about as a team offline yesterday. One threat that we potentially see up and coming here are valuations primarily in the tech space. And so when we look at that, one area we'd like to look to is kind of a broader gauge is the MSCI World Tech Index. We're seeing valuations there kind of being back to dot-com bubble levels. And when I say that, not trying to spook anyone, it's more 
how do we learn from this, right? How do we take this information and make it applicable to today and going forward? And so things change over time. Tech companies, they maybe growth rates are anticipated to just continue to march higher going forward, right? Maybe there's changes in dominance in the marketplace, so to speak. But I think the key thing to take away from potentially lofty valuations is that when you have higher valuations, there is a higher demand for the growth of a company's earnings going forward. Yeah, and when it comes to a lot of those tech names, uh, at least they're cash flow positive, <laughs> a good number of them. Not all of them, of course. Right? Just like if you look at the small cap space, there could still be opportunities there, but the vast, actually, I think it's more than 50% of them aren't profitable. Right? So, you know, do you really want to be hitching your wagon to an unprofitable horse when you might be going through some rocky terrain here. That's one of the things that we've been talking about on our investment committee as far as how we're positioning portfolios. When it comes to the uh, bigger threats, I think one could be the possibility of a double dip earnings recession where we'd already had an earnings recession. So if you went from fourth quarter 2022 to through actually the second quarter of 2023, which we just got through, S&P 500 companies had sequential declines in earnings per share. The consensus is calling for a rebound in Q3. Maybe that'll happen, but then it, uh, the consensus seems to be calling for an acceleration of earnings again. And I think that there's actually a higher risk that you could see actually a decline in earnings in the fourth quarter as these long and variable lags of monetary policy prove that they are indeed long in the, and it's not as short as what the Fed or investors have been expecting. And so the last thing here then, Brian, you know, we talk about earnings recessions and whatnot as well, but I think one thing that could maybe come alongside that, maybe it is a coincident indicator, maybe it's led by it, maybe it kind of follows it afterwards, but what we've also talked about as a threat is the possibility of further spread widening mm -hmm. here, right? That tends to be a coincident indicator to the start of a recession. And so we touched on the cost of funding earlier as a weakness, but you know, bringing that into kind of a threat, it can go hand in hand as far as being a weakness of a threat because you run the risk of potentially seeing more of a credit event. Maybe that's because you start to hit these maturity walls. Companies aren't able to basically service these debt payments at higher rates. So potential for spread widening there as well. Yeah, that'd be one of the almost real-time indicators that I would watch. We've already got a yield curve that was inverted. Now it's beginning to uninvert. So those are kind of two indicators you can watch for a recession being on the horizon. And a third one is the credit spreads. If you see a material widening of them. Now it doesn't have to be like a blowout of spreads like we saw during the global financial crisis. It could just be this gradual increase in them. But once you cross a certain threshold, it does become more and more burdensome. And that does tend to be a good indicator that credit conditions have tightened enough that the economy is beginning to roll over. Episode 66 headlines, what's our strength? I would say on the economic side of things, we've got new home sales, consumer confidence, but then on the market side, we've also got some companies that are just continuing to really rake in the cash. Headline weakness? The cost of funding. Headline opportunity. Look for opportunities in China, but really broadly, it's about that intersection between value and quality. And our headline threat. Running the risk of a double dip earnings recession. Annex Wealth Management, SWAT Podcast, episode 66, Monday, August 28th. Trevor Nargis, senior trader, thank you. Thank you. Dr. Brian Jacobson, chief economist, Annex Wealth Management, thank you. Thanks so much. Annex Wealth Management, LLC, is a registered investment advisor. For more information about our firm, please visit AnnexWealth.com. The information in this podcast is 
is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is subject to change without notice. The opinions expressed are those of the participants and don't necessarily reflect on those of Annex Wealth Management, LLC. Information presented should not be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice, or a recommendation or a solicitation for the sale of any product or strategy. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from qualified professionals to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Investments involve risk. Neither Annex Wealth Management, LLC, nor its podcast participants shall be liable for losses resulting from decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on this podcast.